Today on the Dolby Institute podcast, we've got the filmmaking team behind Spain's official entry for the Academy Awards, the incredible new film, Society of the Snow. We're joined today by the film's director, co-writer Juan Antonio Bayona, the director of photography, Pedro Luca, and the sound designer, re-recording mixer, and supervising sound editor of the film, Oriel Tarago, who join us to discuss how they crafted this riveting retelling of the 1972 infamous air disaster in the Andes, where a team of rugby players from Uruguay had to do the unthinkable to survive. Society of the Snow popped up on my radar a few weeks ago when I started hearing people in the film sound community talking about what an extraordinary track it is. So I was really excited to get to see the movie in a proper cinema with a fantastic Dolby Atmos sound system because the Atmos track on this film is really extraordinary. And I knew within a couple of minutes that I wanted to have this team on the podcast. So I'm thrilled to be in conversation with them today. We spoke on the morning that the film got nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture Non-English Language. So everybody was in really high spirits. And uh, while the film is indeed very harrowing, it is also filled with so much pathos and humanity. I wanted to start our conversation with the director by asking him what it was that drew him to this famous real life story. It was the, the emotional impact I had on Pablo Bierce's book. It was so shocking because I thought I knew the story, but the story was much bigger of what I thought it was. And the reading was so different because this story has been always so focused in heroism, in cannibalism, which are themes that are so small in the general picture, you know, in the overall of the story. So there was a lot of space there to, to tell a new, a new tale, you know. Actually, the survivors didn't recognize themselves in the, in the tale. The tale was much bigger and was so different to what was um, out there that, that we decided to jump in and start to explore what was still left to be told. When you say the survivors didn't recognize themselves, are you, are you, are you referring to because the story had evolved so much over time and being retold so many times? I'm thinking about there's that amazing quote that you have in the film, and I know I'm not going to get it exactly right, but someone says basically the past is what changes the most. Yeah, that's that's part of the journey, like going back to the past, trying to understand what happened, but also trying to change the way we feel about the story because they, they, they keep telling us the story, focusing on heroism, cannibalism, some characters were more important than other ones, you know. That's not what happened in the mountain, you know. That's only a small part of what happened in the mountain. So that was the challenge. How can we, we're going to be able to really tell the, the, the scope of this story when, when basically what made the story bigger was not the fact. We knew the fact was this kind of like almost spiritual or philosophical layer that had to be, that had to be told. So when I first heard about your film, I, I think I presume that, you know, you probably shot most of the sequences that are that take place on the mountain, you know, from the, the safety and warmth of a sound stage with a bunch of green screen. But this is uh, I'm aware this is not the approach that you took. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your your 
the way you decided to shoot the movie and how you went about setting it up? There was not an easy scene in the film, I can tell you. Not a single one, I can tell you. I mean, we, we had this cast of young actors, most of them unexperienced actors, most, most of them newcomers. And we go hand by hand with them through this experience. We shot it chronologically in contact with the people who experienced that in first hand. Um, so it was a luxury, you know, to be able to tell the story that way in real locations, providing the actors with the information, uh, getting in contact with uh, the book and the survivors and the families of the disease and with the context to make them through the, the, the same emotions. The, not the, Of course, not the same, but similar emotions the survivors went through. So they were able to experience a little bit of hungry, of hunger by following this strict diet they had to follow to lose weight, to experience the, the temperature, the cold by shooting in real snow or this, this sense of isolation because they spent six months shooting in Spain very far away from their families or or their girlfriends. Pedro, I wanted to ask you, I mean, I, I know you're from Uruguay, so this I presume that you've, you grew up with this story. And so how did you, what, what did that sort of make you feel in terms of, of the, the, the pressure to, to get it right and to be authentic? Yeah, and um, for me, like when I when I was a kid, I already walked around with the book, right, with the alive book, which was the one that was common, right, and um, and uh, I ended up having a friend telling me, like, reminding me of that. I didn't, I didn't, re I didn't remember that when when my young approached uh, to me with this story, but beyond that, it was like it was. I felt it was about time to tell this story properly, right? And um, properly for what I felt that that was needed. I mean, a lot of time passed since the the the, the other the previous movie, and a lot a lot of time passed since the, the the plane crash. So there's another level of understanding now. There's another level of also in the in the filmmaking craft. There's another level of 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 uh things that we can achieve right and i think and i thought in that moment i was like it was it was about time to tell this story from this new perspective we have now right it was uh it was one of those things that um that um i couldn't say no it was like the perfect storm it was a story about my country which we don't have that many stories right and uh it's a very small country and um was with this fantastic director that I admired a lot and, and I admire more now. And, um, and it was like, uh, and then when, when, I, when I spoke with, with Juan Antonio, it was like, uh, okay, okay. I think I, think I'm, I may be, you know, like I'm, I'm seeing the light here, you know, but it was, it was completely fantastic. I, it, was, it was really, really, really tough to do this. You know, it, was, it wasn't, it wasn't an easy task, but um, but I think the movie, you know, pays off. You know, when when I when I see it, I I I feel it, and uh, it's such a it's such a vivid experience when you watch this movie. I know when you were researching, I know you went up into the Andes and you made a trip up to, I guess, a, a spot close to where the plane crash actually happened. I've read that that was a very difficult trip. 
So can you, can you tell us about doing that research? And specifically, I'm curious, what did you learn going up there about how that place looked and sounded? And so what did you come back and tell Pedro and Oriol about how to make this as realistic as possible? You know, there is this moment in the book was very interesting. Right before this press conference, they, they did to tell the world what they did. One of the characters is so nervous because he's been the chosen to, to talk to the audience. And he's so nervous that he, he, he doesn't know what to say. And there's one of the teachers from the, the school telling him, just explain them the context. If you explain the context, they will understand everything. To me, that line gave me the, 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 the clue, the key. So the first thing I did, I, I went to the mountain. Uh, Pedro was there with a team of uh, professional climbers that owns a production company specialized in this kind of three extreme shoot situations, shootings, the Benegas brothers. So, so uh, Pedro went there for 20 days to shoot backgrounds, uh, take all the photographies, you know, uh, that kind of research that we needed. And I wanted to be there and experience the mountain by myself because we were in this pre-production that we were rushing a little bit. They told me, you need to spend three days uh, to get used to the altitude. Even though you can get there in 20 minutes with a helicopter, they told me, you need three days because you need to get used to the altitude. Because we were rushing it so much, instead of three, it was two. And that was the worst decision of my life. Because I had one of the worst nights ever in my life, the, the headache, this lack of uh, sense of time that, that suddenly I look at my watch, I thought it was sunrise already, and it only had passed an hour and a half. Uh, waking up in the morning and discover that, that your bottle of water totally frozen, like it was like a piece of ice, you know, and suddenly... You realize that it was one night for me and I was sleeping in my uh, sleeping bag with proper clothes. Imagine like what was for them 72 nights, 72 days with no preparation, you know? So that puts you in the context. I had to be there. Then I had to be there to, to see the size of the, 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 the landscape. So you, you tell, you can tell how epic is what they, what they did. And the, and the other thing I think is very interesting what you're saying is the sound. The, the only thing that you can hear there is yourself, is your own breathing. So I, I remember that as soon as I got signal, I, I called Uriol and I said, you really need to talk to these guys, the Venega brothers. They need to tell you about the specifics of the sound. It's very particular. It's very... It's, it's very fascinating. You know, they, there is this thing that they call the train, which I didn't know what it was. But it, I, I remember that I was like at night, one night I, I separate from the rest for 10 meters, 15 meters. And I start to hear this thunderous, thunderous sound coming from the cliff of the mountain. And I thought it was an avalanche. And suddenly that thing hit me. It was the wind. And they told me, well, well, that's what we call the train. It's the sound of the wind coming from the top of the mountain. 
So, so I was so, so shocked about all those details that I called Uriol and I said, talk to these people. They need to give you all the specifics of the, of the color palette of the sound. Because one of the challenges that we had is that we, 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 we had very few elements. Only the, only the fuselage, the sound of the iron of the fuselage, the sound of the wind and the silence. Uh, and, and, and the, but there was a lot of, specifics in that color palette you know in in the in the and the way we were able to play with these sounds Oriel, i think that's a great uh, a great time to bring you into the conversation i mean the thing that i noticed as well you know obviously sound i mean snow is very absorptive of sound so tell us a little bit about crafting the sonic landscape of being up there on the mountain because i love i love what juan antonio was saying like you can hear the wind before the wind actually reaches you but tell you, you didn't you didn't have very much to, you didn't have very much to hide behind in this there's no you know there, there's obviously there's nothing alive up there except for the guys exactly so soon we realized after uh, after bayona call so i did we did this interview with the venegas that you know i i've been skiing since i'm a kid you know but you never you never lived, you never like past dates and, and the alpine areas, like, you know, and sleeping and knowing how is, you know, facing that, 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 the, the mountain, right? In, in that level. So that infer interviews, we did a couple of them with them and it was uh, really um, valuable in a way of like the, <clears throat> this, we've been talking for like hours about just different kinds of snow. <laughs> There's different kinds of snow. There's snow in the, mon the morning when it's melting. When it's so, it was, so suddenly we, I realized it was just the sound of the snow, the wind, and the silence. When the silence, they said that the wind is always present, but when it stops, they they say that the the the, the silence is so deep that that you, your own sounds is the only thing that, that you can you can get. They all, the one of them say that you can hear sometimes the the, the heartbeat, your, your own heartbeat. Um, and and in the way they also they connect with the inner self. It's they, they, they say that up there is just so you're just alone. It's just like almost a vacuum, right? So um, we realize that the the sun palette will be very small, and the the interesting thing it will be like getting a lot of details, a lot of different colors of these four elements, and give richness uh, to the sound, uh, getting like a lot of different sounds. So we start recording. We had two winters here in, in, in Spain during the, the production. So we had two winters and we record, we record, actually we record uh, uh, the wind in the, in the Valley of the Dead, we, uh, the, 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 the Valley of the Tears, sorry. Uh, we came back actually like in August, a year later, uh, like nine months later uh, to shoot again. So we bought an uh, ambisonic microphone and then we teach the, 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 the Benega brothers and the experts how to use it, so they recorded on the Valley of the Tears. So we got real um, uh, wind uh, recordings from there, like mm, like from three or four days. We got a lot of stuff from that, and 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 then we, we record like a lot of snow here in the Pyrenees, and also more wind. And so that's soon step by step we started getting a lot of like recordings, and then we realized that. Bayona want to give to this film a personal touch of like more introspective, like more like what the characters felt and more like, not more like what they happened. Of course it happened, but what, what they went through, right? So we realized the sound, the silence will be a powerful tool to, 
to put the audience sometimes in in a moment in a scene that the audience have to to decide what they need to feel. You know, when you have you when you have like these these moments that you don't have underlined the emotion with music or with a sound effect. Um, the audience gets so uncomfortable, so they need to decide what is the emotion behind that. So we thought that would be a powerful tool, and also we thought that is an, an organic way to use and not just like a formal way that, okay, we're going to do this scene like in silence because it's always been loud. But it would, we're gonna, no, it's something that we learned from the mountains, and I think uh, it, was, uh, it was very useful for, for Bayona uh, filmmaking or style for this movie. Pedro, tell us about uh, that trip when you were up in the Valley of uh, uh, Tears. I guess you, so you were, you were shooting background plates. Is that what you were doing? We had a team of people that had helped us, right? Uh, um, another DP and, you know, people that knew the mountain really well. And uh, we basically took the cameras we were going to use and lenses, and we shot a lot of uh, backgrounds, a lot of white shots. We shot a lot of uh, helicopter shots about you know, expeditions, people climbing, that we had these stunts, doubles. We came back later to the mountain uh, on the next year because that on October 2021, I think it was the, the first time we were there, the snow wasn't that um, that good, right? And uh, we knew from the survivors that in 1972, there, there, had, there was a big, big snow and the place was completely white so we had to come back and a year later but it was it was great it, there, there's a story about it that on the um, on the 13th october the 13th it was 50 it was 2022 or 2021 it was 2021 no it was 2022 because it was the 50th anniversary it was the 50th anniversary yeah, it was 2022 so it, it was the exact day of the anniversary at the exact time yes at the exact time at 3 30 p.m uh there was this big wind that picked up and came from the mountain and uh it it uh we had to evacuate the camp one of the big domes flew away like Quart, uh, half a mile away, you know, and every, basically we left everything as it was. And then we came back to pick up those carts. But uh, this place is, it's a dangerous place. And we weren't at the place where the fuselage was because that's a real dangerous place where, where it, it's, you know, all the avalanches go through there because it's basically at the end of a bowl at the amphitheater, right? There's a, there's a, there's a gl glacier and the plane slid down. The camp was 45 minutes by walk, uh, by, by foot, right? Um, so we will walk every morning, 4.30 a.m. or 5 a.m., you know, like down the path. Yeah, but it's funny, Pedro, that it was a 45 minutes walk in that situation, because some of the, some of the runners that were professional climbers will do that walk in five minutes no, not five, but maybe 12. Remember that day that we for, forgot a lens? Yeah, and there was a guy running. And we were losing the light. And one of the runners says, I'm going to run for it. And he went for, for the lens to base camp and came back in 10 minutes. And it took us, for us, it was a, an hour and a half walk to, to go and to go to the base camp and come back. We actually shot the guy with a zoom. We were like, wow, go, 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 go longer. And we used, the guy was like... 
jumping. So it was physically very demanding because uh, it, it was uh, it was it was a uh, we we had to had we had to build base camp forty five minutes away from from where the plane from where the plane was. But it was forty five minutes in that situation. I mean, because every every you had to stop from time to time and breathe because there it's uh, there is a lack of oxygen that doesn't allow to move that fast there. Well, our uh, our friends at Netflix have been gracious enough to give us some clips uh, to show and and discuss. And so, obviously, we're going to talk about this movie. We have to talk about the plane crash. So uh, let's uh, let's uh, run the clip of the of the plane crash. This plane crash, I mean, we've seen plane crashes in films before, but this one just is so shocking. And I think part of, part of it is your, your sense of scale. You know, you, you have the huge shots with the, you know, the wings come off and everything is crazy and the fuselage. But then you also have that extraordinary sequence when the seats are accordioning up and, you know, you, you see legs breaking and very intimate sort of what happens to a body in the plane crash and Oriole, what an amazing job on the mix. Like in the middle of all this chaos, you were able to definitely kind of like, we hear those bones cracking. So Juan Antonio, just tell me about your approach to, to building that plane crash sequence. Yeah, there is a line in the book that from the survivors uh, that says the difference between being alive or dead was a single breath. So that's the, the, that's the, the range of the dynamic of the film, you know, there is a reference at the the first night in during the aftermath. You see this guy asking for help, and in one cut, it's daytime and he's dead. That's referring to to this idea, you know. But that's an idea that you can address to the to the whole film. So basically, we have two two, two sections in the scene. One that is more about the tension because we know that the audience knows. So we, we, we play with expectations and, and you build the tension that something is going on. And very slowly, you start to turn the situation from something that feels like fun and calm into something that is full of tension. And suddenly, bang, there is this big hit, you know, against the mountain. And, and this is the second section of the scene. Uh, so 
the, the difference is black and white, you know? So there's a sense of escalation in this first section. Slowly by details, you see that the thing is, something is transforming into, into this nightmare situation. And then I remember one reference that I gave the visual effects team and Pedro is that section when they crash uh, the plane against the snow and, and, and all the seats accord were like move forward and trap all the survivors as an accordion. One of the funny reference I gave them was the, the shower scene in cycle. Because we are creating this sense of anticipation and slowly, 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 slowly we get to this moment that suddenly it's like crash, 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 crash. You know, that's the, that's the dynamic of the scene, you know, and it turns that moment into something very physical. You know, because it, 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 it was like common in all the interviews with the survivors that the worst moment were when the seats move forward and trap them into this kind of like mess of iron and flesh, you know. Uh, and that's the reference, you know, like this, this, this immersive idea of being with the characters inside the plane, not many shots from the outside, not knowing more of the little they knew, and suddenly this big hit that almost feels like the shower in psych, almost like something physical. I love the way you play with dynamics. Before the big moment where the plane hits the mountain, you've got that close up on the eyeball and the sound, you know, you go largely silent. And then, and so you're, you're, you're playing with the audience in terms of like dynamic range. I think this, the sound work is excellent in that, in that specific moment. I think there's the contrast, like the dynamic of the movie, it's uh, sound-wise and picture-wise, it's it's uh, it's something that it's uh, it's there all the time. We have to reflect the fury of the mountain and the silence, as we said before, the wind and the silence. Now we have this element. Um, Bayona wanted to this scene have it have it without music, so uh, we realize uh, I realized the engine of the of the plane could be like a good tool to make this build up. And like infinite build-up, so uh, like cutting in inside and outside, and having the, these colors, but at the end it's just like a ram going up. So uh, also like um, inspired with the picture um, when 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 Numa watched the see the sun and, and 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 the sun burns his face, I thought that that build build-up could be like go to the high, so high, 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 and peace that at the end could be like a devil, like like mute, like silence. So we we kind of like. Uh, um, like stylize, like make it like more um, um, the the angel, like make it like like in a style and an effect, like right, and we convert it like in a silence. So and then it's a very loud scene all the time. So you you cannot be loud all the time. We know that rule. You know you know event after after event. So you want to give like this silence to breathe, right? Audience to you know again. Um, feel what happened, and then you go boom to the next beat, and then you get, and then you can go to from low end sounds to high end sounds. So you give dynamics also with colors. So that's more or less how we did it. <laughs> it tries to be a moment of pure cinema where all the elements play at the same time, tries to play at the same time in favor of the moment. You know, it's a moment of silence, but it's also a moment of light. You know, it's very powerful. We had this idea. Numa is this character that is so well... The, the, the memories of all the survivors were, were that Numa was um, an example of the excellence in the mountain. 
but the complexity the complexity of the film tells you that you have to keep some part of you you have to save some part of the energy for yourself because if not you will not you will not going to make it but numa was unable to keep anything for himself he gave himself his he gave all of himself to the other ones so light was a problem for numa he was unable to accept his shadows this is where the idea is coming from right before the crash what blinds numa is the sunlight because ultimately this is what is going to blind the character this obsession to be always so good that he's an, he's not he is not he's not able to accept his shadows and that's a moment of pure cinema right before the plane crash this silence and this light right before the, the crash is the calm before the storm i, I love how you talk about uh, pure cinema because uh, to me i'm actually even more excited by the sequence that comes right after the plane crash so as the plane settles down in the bowl and stops moving you know the plane crash itself is a is a scene that's so it's almost brutal in its realism and literalness but then this the next scene where the survivors are trying to react and figure out what's happened, how do, what, what do we do next? It, it's, it's almost lyrical and impressionistic. Um, and the, the treatment of sound is completely different. Pedro, the way you shot that scene is completely different. Talk to us a little bit about that, that very next sequence right after. Well, it was actually the first sequence we shot when we started shooting this movie. Right. And, um, and it was really tough to do uh, because we we were very well prepared, but we weren't that well prepared to face all these chaos, right? We you gotta think that there was like all the forty five passengers inside that plane, some some alive, some dead, uh, all all of the seats. You know, suddenly we we found ourselves, you know, having to cram all these probably like eight. 10 seats flew away with the tail, you know, like there were like 32 left that had to be in there. And they were like deformed and crashed and there were bodies everywhere. And there were like, you know, we had the dummies of all the people that died. That was, and, and we were like trying to put these cameras inside this place. That was the moment, first day of shoot, shooting, that we realized how hard it was going to be. Because that was supposed to be, that was a, a portable sound stage that we bring from Belgium to the parking lot of the ski resort we were shooting. So we were able to keep the weather conditions in the sound stage. So we had real snow, we have the, the cold to catch the breath of the actors. But then we got into the set, all the seats had crumped against the cockpit and we realized that we need to fit 29 people in inside that space and one camera crew so there was no there was no way of of shooting the scenes like like it was not possible so so actually that was the moment that we decided that we had to shoot the film as if it was a documentary of it so we already had prepared the actors to know all the information. They were in contact with the survivors. They read the book. They did two months of rehearsals. And that was the moment that we just needed to let the things happen 
for real in front of the camera. And 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 Pedro was so generous that he was there ready all the time to adapt to the situations as if we were in the mountains. And I always keep telling him, don't worry if we cannot shoot it the way we want it, because the way we can is going to be better. The, because that's the way he will shoot real. It, it was all about at the service of the performances and the realism of the story. Yeah, I know this, those imperfections that may happen that may sometimes drive us crazy as, as DPs, you know. All those imperfections are the ones that make the thing more real. In the end, life, it's not perfect, you know, and, uh, and, and, and you have to embrace that kind of stuff. I use it in your favor. I appreciate you saying that because I feel, Pedro, like I, I, you know, Juan Antonio was talking about how to, you know, you have all, the, all these actors in this tight space and you're having to be in there with a the camera as well. And so I, I feel like that probably forced you into really using a lot of very wide angle lenses and deep focus. And then, but a seeming limitation you ended up using to your advantage because it really gives you, uh, you know, a sense of emotional entrapment. On this search of, of of getting this emotion, you know, we had these actors that were really well prepared, like Juan Antonio and the coaches, and uh, we felt it in our in our core that when we were like, if we, if we took away a wall from the uh, fuselage and you know put the camera there with a the fifty, it looked just that you were too far away. You know, it looked weird. It looked staged. It looked so. We wanted to be close. We needed to be close, you know, like uh, when we put the camera close to the actors with those wide angles, we finally felt, okay, here it is, you know, and it was, it was a, for a movie this size and this complexity, it was a very sensitive journey that we went through, you know, of like trying to realize what we were looking by, feeling it, you know, even though that. You know, there's the, we had a lot of storyboards we did with Juan Antonio, and we ended up like most of them throwing them away. Um, but um, but there was a lot, a lot of um, of of uh, experimentation. We had to be all the time connected with what was happening in front of the camera. And remember this 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 dynamic, this range of dynamic I mentioned was the same with the lenses. We are from very wide lenses that allowed us to experience the context. Uh, we we talk a lot about cinematographers that we love from the 70s, you know, like like Bill Sigmund, the way they worked, the depth of field, that you always have the impression of being in the set with the actors. You know, but then we were coming from these wide lenses to the, to these diopters right in front of the actors, and and it became very psychological. You know, that change from the wide lens where we can see the landscape, we can see the the set all the time. From this moment that we are very focused in in, in the face of the actor, with a, with only with a little with a very small range of focus that becomes very psychological because it's like getting into their minds. So so we are playing all the time with that contrast. You know, the same with the sound, the same with the with the with the framing. You no, know? like going from super wide shots where the figures are small to this close-ups or the use of the lenses from the widest one from from the diopters, you know, or macro shots. The same with the lighting, because you will be outside in a bright exterior full of snow to an interior that was super dark and had some windows that was at night with barely some light. After the plane crash, it's, like Bayona said, the, um, 
it's like understanding what happened. For me, it's also like mm, a lot of people die, but it also is like the death of the plane. And, and the, the plane, it, it will convert, it will be, it, it became something else, it will become the fossilized, it will become, so some, the sounds of the iron that later on will, will leave in the, in the, in the movie will appear and also we, we became, so we cannot be loud all the time, you cannot be using the same tool all the time because the audience will get tired. So we had three scenes of people suffering that plane crash. The, when they realize what happened and they just, you know, helping each other. And then there's the first night. So we had like these, these three scenes that we have to measure how we're going to uh, play, of course, with dynamics, but also with the, with the, with the, with the tension and, uh, and the drama, because you cannot be putting the audience all the time like like in the drama on top so we decide to have this scene more in, introspective also also because of the way of was filmed so numa is kind of like realizing first he's in shock so we leave the scene from his point of view so he's in silence so he's inside and he can hear anything and suddenly the sound of the of an iron uh, seed moving you know uh, turns him and he kind of like understand what's going on, but then he goes away and then another sound. So the sound is moving the camera some, somehow. So I got inspired with the movements of the camera. So a sound of off screen is moving the camera, like the tension of, of, of Numa. And then later on the first night, we realized it's a good time to use music and leave that scene, not, not so like from a noisy scene, you know, more like from outside and from the motion, you know. Maybe Bayona can explain that better. But uh, we, we, we kind of like measure how sound-wise we can approach and, and have different different approaches to, to the drama. Yeah, there's a sense of escalation, you know, and, and, and how you use uh, the elements playing in the scene. So, so you, you need to create that range, you know, like after being for so much time, no hearing any kind of music, suddenly you play the music and it has an emotional effect, you know, it's about restraint and knowing where to play silence and where to play music. I think one of the most effective things that Uriol did is to give a voice to the plane. He sounds, the, the plane sounds, it, it sounds almost as a hurt animal, which is what it looks like when you see it from the outside, you know? These kind of like noises that sounds like, like it's kind of like like a like a huge animal, like a heavy one, like a heart hearted elephant or something like that. You know, I remember that there is. Uh, I, I remember I was flying, I uh, and I was recording sounds from from my with using my telephone. The, these sounds of where the plane was doing like or that sound like an animal, and I thought let's let's use those sounds when the when the plane is getting into the cloud. So it sounds like an animal knowing what is going to happen, like 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 the plane is complaining of getting into that cloud because he knows what's going to happen, you know. So in a so in a subliminal way, you're you're playing with the audience that knows what is going to happen. When the plane is alive, has his own personality, but when he's dead, has a different one, and and in in the middle of this emptiness or stillness, um, when we realized this fossilized will be another element, I thought it would be another, like another, almost another character. So, um, and it kind of react. I tried to make like a, a tons of different colors 
of low end for like for a dark moment when they talk about eating or like like bright uh, tickling of a metal with like some like hope scene or whatever. So like in a way that the fuselage will react to the emotion of the scene. It's like it's not like music, but it will it will will work like at least like that way, like in a in a background way. Uh, using the fuselage as a like like a sound element. What one of my favorite moments is uh, after the rescue. We had this moment of silence. You know, you see how all the survivors got into the helicopters, and with a bang, like a strong bump in a door, suddenly there's silence, and we have this character Fito looking back with a sense of nostalgia to the plane, because there was this line that I love from the survivors that says, we never were better persons than in the mountains. Juan Antonio, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I, when I watched the movie again, I, 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 I noticed that shot, that sequence. With, with, and it, it had such an emotional effect on me because what it told me in that moment was he had a realization like the next part is not gonna be any easier than what, is, what we've just gone through. Exactly. That's what the, the, the last minutes of the film are about. That moment, that transition, you know, like when he looks back and suddenly we go back to the fuselage, we go back to what was their home for 72 days and there is silence and you only hear the sounds of, 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 the, of the plane, the sounds of the wind you've been hearing all the time. And it's this idea of there's so much life in the absence of life, you know, it's it's, that, it's it's this like of contradictory idea. It feels very philosophical, you know. But it's these empty shots are so full of life, the life that they went through for seventy-two days, and they, and what's beautiful about it is that music from from Giacchino disappears, fades, and we only hear the sounds of the plane. So we allow the audience to fill the gap. We are not forcing them to, to, to feel what we want them to feel. We are just inviting them to feel that silence with all the emotions they went through uh, during the film. And, and that's what I think makes it so effective. Well, Juan Antonio, before we get to the end of the film, you're not done playing with our emotions and taking us through this extraordinary. We do have another clip from Netflix, uh, which is the the avalanche sequence. And the thing that I love about this is it's it it comes right after a very lighthearted moment with the guys in the plane and they're singing to each other and doing the verses and not singing, but they're they're doing the the, the verses to each other and it's trying to lighten the mood. But then, of course, me, you know, I've grown up watching movies. I know this is a lighthearted moment. Something horrible is probably about to happen. And then, sure enough, the avalanche hits. So let's take a look at this clip.
Oriel, the thing that I noticed right away is the extraordinary treatment of sound once the that snow first hits. And I, I feel like, did you bury microphones and snow, contact microphones and snow? What did you do? Yeah, we did a lot of recordings. Actually, we, we broke some microphones on the on the way, but uh, we buried microphones. That actually, that was a idea that came along later on, and to have that black longer and kind of explain of um, and Roy Hartley, like get out of the snow on uh, through the sound. We explained that, so we got. To the super uh, to, to the outdoor, and we recorded on on land, but didn't work. So at the end, what we did is like we built like a small box of wood, and we fill it with with snow, and then with another materials to have like this low end kind of sound because in the real ground you didn't get that low end, the energy would get disappear, right? So you couldn't capture. So we did that in a box in the studio at the end. And it's it's a sound that it works to feel like if you were trapped inside the snow and, and it worked it. And Pedro, obviously this is a what you were talking about earlier, like you go to almost total blackness in that sequence. You have very little light to work with. Well, the, the avalanche itself, it, we go to black. The sound is amazing. I, I was like, I was blown away with that. And uh, it gets to a, so sorry, I go into sound. It gets to a frequency that's so loud. It's like it full, it fills the, 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 that area there and gives you a shock. Then we go to black and then, uh, we see Roy coming out that all that part is like, it's, it's very brutal. It was really difficult to shoot, right? Dif very difficult to plan on how these guys are going to come out of the snow because it was dangerous, right? And we, ha we, we need to take really good care of them. And, um, and, uh, and the, the, eventually we had to, you know, throw ourselves with them inside the snow. So the, the camera operators were like laying on the, on the snow with them and cleaning the lenses themselves because there was no room for anyone else. And it was very frantic and they got desperate for real, you know. I think you need to explain what was the size of the, of the set in order to make them understand the challenge because there was no space for the camera. I mean, we, we had a set that was 14 meters after the avalanche it's half of it, it's seven meters. And in those seven meters, 40, 45 centimeters uh, height. And uh, probably uh, two meters wide. Two meters wide, uh, 45 uh, centimeters tall. There were 19 actors, eight corpses, and two camera crews. So imagine that the, the difficulties, imagine that the, the actors themselves are sometimes cleaning the lenses, you know, and 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 Andy, we had to attach two microphones. We built like a specific, so we had two microphones on the camera. So that was like very helpful. Thank you, Pedro. So to have that, because there's no way they could put the woman operators. No, no, we have to teach the 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 actors how to. Uh, change the microphone if, the, if something was wrong or they have a spray battery on the pocket because you couldn't go inside and uh, Bayona wanted to keep all the time the energy and have long shots so it was just like you know <laughs> real it was uh, miserable right because it was real snow we 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 couldn't do that with like fake snow you, you you are too close you know snow is flying everywhere it had to be real at the end then you know there's the second avalanche that covers it all right? And they go to complete black. They start using their lighters and the lighters, they very soon realized that they couldn't use lighters all the time, first of all, because they run out of 
gas fuel, whatever they had. And also they ran out of oxygen because they made with a tube, you know, they made a hole through the fuselage to get some air in. Well, I, we're, we're at the end of our time. I, I thank you guys so much for coming on the Dolby podcast to talk with us about the film. Juan Antonio, Pedro, Oriol, this, it's just an extraordinary achievement. Uh, I'm so glad to, to, to get the time to, to talk with you guys. Big pleasure. Thank you so much. Many thanks to Juan Antonio, Pedro, and Oriol for joining us on the podcast today. And an extra special thanks to our friends at Netflix for putting this conversation together for us and for providing us with those extraordinary clips. I imagine that you will be hearing a lot more about Society of the Snow in the coming weeks and over this award season, so be sure to check it out as soon as you can, and if you can, see it in a theater with a great Dolby Atmos sound system. We'll have links, as always, in our show notes. And if you'd like even more conversations with artists and filmmakers about how they use technology to tell their stories, please make sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube in our show notes, or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you'll find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, thank you for joining us. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. Thanks again for joining us.